Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Rob Weinberg on January 30, 2022. Rob has worked as a broadcast journalist and produced radio programs for both the BBC and independent radio in the United Kingdom. He's also the author of several major biographies, including Ethel Jenner Rosenberg in 1995, Lady Blomfield in 2012, and most recently a testimony to the personage of Abdu'l-Bahá, the son of the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, called Ambassador to Humanity, which we discuss in the interview. From 1994 to 2008, Rob was senior producer and on-air editor for the popular national classic music station, Classic FM, during which time he made programs with Sir Edward Heath, Paul McCartney, the Three Tenors, and countless other leading figures from the art world. He's a regular writer on art and reviewer of exhibitions for the Telegraph newspaper, Apollo magazine, the Art Story website, and the British Art Journal. Since 2020, he's been producing and presenting podcasts and documentary films for historian Dan Snow and his History Hit Network. I started the interview by asking Rob where he grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in Canterbury in the southeast of England, which is a very historic city, the centre of the Church of England. My father had actually moved to Canterbury in 1960. He'd recently joined the Baha'i Faith and moved there because it was one of the main cathedral cities in the United Kingdom where they were trying to form local Baha'i assemblies. So I grew up in a Baha'i family. Both my parents were Jewish, actually. My mother first heard of the Baha'i faith in the United States in 1955, and my father first heard of it in South Africa in 1958, mm -hmm. but he couldn't find out anything about it then because it was very underground. Because in South Africa, obviously, with apartheid and the segregation of white and black people, the Baha'i faith, which was promoting the oneness of humanity and the unity of all peoples was not something that you could find out about very easily in South Africa. So he actually met my mother at the Baha'i Centre in London when he first came over from South Africa. And they got married in 1963, but he'd moved to Canterbury before that. And I was born there in 1965. So my brother and I were raised as Baha'is in a Baha'i family. But we're always very conscious of our Jewish roots, our Jewish ancestry, and relatives came to visit. It was interesting in the sense that we were a small community at that point. So I think for most of that time, we were the only Baha'i children in that community. Is your father South African and, is, and your mother an American? My father came from South Africa. My mother actually was born and bred in London. She grew up in London. But if we go back a little bit further, our ancestry was Jewish, probably mostly from Lithuania, maybe Poland, because my family name, Weinberg, came from the Lithuanian side of the family. My mother's maiden name was Brand, and her mother's maiden name was Lysak, which is, I think, Polish. So we were Jewish families from Eastern Europe that were chased out of Eastern Europe during the late 19th, early 20th century. I know my grandfather on my dad's side actually arrived in London from Lithuania and had his bar mitzvah in London, I think in 1903, before he went to South Africa. So a lot of Lithuanian Jews ended up in South Africa. My grandfather went and had a very successful jewellery business. So that's where my father grew up. But interestingly, he never felt particularly Jewish. He always read about other religions. He always wondered why his particular family would consider themselves part of the chosen people, the chosen race. And 
thought, well, if I'd been born in any other circumstances, if I'd been born in India, I would have been Hindu. If I'd been born in Japan, I'd be Buddhist. You know, if I'd been born in South America, I'd be Catholic. So how is it that we are right, the righteous people, and everyone else is wrong? So he read a lot about other religions, and he he'd come to this conclusion for himself that they were all saying the same thing, that if you look at the spiritual teachings of religion, essentially they're all the same and whatever religion you are happens to be more or less an accident of what family you're born into and what part of the world you're born into so he'd come to that conclusion for himself that religion was one that humanity was one so when he first heard about the baha'i faith he knew that that was what he was looking for but as i said he couldn't find out much about it in south africa and he had to wait till he got to london before he really investigated it further so he sort of discovered it by reading or something no it's an interesting story actually he was working in an architect's office in south africa he, he trained as an architect and one day his boss came back in on a monday morning and said that he had been sitting on a plane uh, that weekend he'd had to fly up to kampala in uganda to do some business and on the plane he was sat next to one of their clients this client of theirs was going off to a international Baha'i conference. And my dad said, what's that? And he said, oh, it's some religion that believes that all religions are one. And my dad said, oh, well, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> but then, of course, he couldn't find out any more. So he never sort of was able to discover anything more about the Baha'i faith uh, while he was in South Africa. Then he left South Africa in 1959. He went to London. So one day in London, my dad saw that a yoga class was being advertised and he went along. And then during the lunch break, he found himself sat at a table with uh, an elderly Canadian woman. He said, are you enjoying the yoga class? And she said, yes, I'm interested in these kinds of things. I'm a Baha'i. And he said, oh, I've been looking for you. <laughs> she, was, she was kind of flabbergasted. Actually, Interestingly, she was a Canadian woman who was on her way to the Holy Land for a Baha'i pilgrimage. And she was only in London for a couple of days. And she'd been staying with a friend and the friend had said, what are you going to do today? Are you Are going to go and do some sightseeing or some shopping? And she said, no, I saw that there was a yoga class advertised. That's the kind of place where you meet receptive souls. Oh, <laughs> gone along to this yoga class to meet a receptive soul and she found herself at the lunch table with my dad who'd heard about the faith but really wanted to know more about it so she then took him along to the Baha'i Centre in London and he made some friends with some of the Baha'is there and then soon after actually I think the day after he, he actually registered as a Baha'i they said to him well we have our youth meeting on Thursday nights would you like to come and give a talk about South Africa and show some slides which he did and my mum was actually in the audience and <laughs> she'd been going along to the Baha'i Centre for about five years her parents thought she was crazy and they thought what on earth is she doing going along to this strange meeting and these strange people and then here comes this nice Jewish boy from South Africa and she thinks ah here's someone I can introduce to my parents because <laughs> I'm not so strange after all so she obviously took made a beeline for him straight away but um, he was kind of a bit oblivious to that fact for about another three years <laughs> <laughs> he moved down to Canterbury and then she went to visit him at weekends they became very good friends and it all took off from there. So they got married in 1963, and I was born in 65. So what brought your father to England in the first place? Well, he was very discontent, actually, with... He'd studied architecture, but he didn't really get on with it. He did the full seven years training, but never really liked it. He wanted to be a teacher, and I think... The family at that time thought that teaching was not such a prestigious profession. You know, you had to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or an architect or something. So, he, I mean, he did have a ability in drawing and an interest in art and architecture, but he really didn't enjoy it. So he felt like he was sort of stuck in a in a job that he wasn't particularly interested in. And also, he wasn't content in South Africa. He'd actually witnessed you know a young black man being beaten up in the street by police because he'd broken the curfew and he knew that was wrong he just was i think very unhappy there 
And quite another interesting story is that one day his mother, in those days, South Africa didn't actually have television until the mid-1970s. Uh, it, wow. it was radio all the way. And his mother had called him one day and said, I've managed to get some tickets for this radio quiz show that was being recorded. And she said, would you come? And so he went with his mother to this quiz show. And it was one of these shows where they pulled people out of the audience to participate. And he actually won a significant amount of money in those days, which was enough to buy him a one-way ticket to London. <laughs> so he left as quickly as he could. At that point, South Africa was about to become independent. And all South Africans living outside South Africa were asked if they wanted to retain British nationality or whether they wanted to become citizens of the new South Africa Republic. And he decided to become British. At the same time, he changed his profession. He finally started teaching as a school teacher. And he changed his religion. So he changed his nationality, his religion and his profession all in the same year. I thought I heard you say that your mother had heard about the Baha'i faith in the U.S. That's absolutely right. She was very active in Jewish youth clubs and she sort of managed an international pen pal service for young Jewish people, which back in the pre-internet days, people used to have pen pals in different parts of the world and write letters to each other people perhaps that they'd never even met but they'd make friends and or they'd be connected up by the pen pal service and then they would build a correspondence with each other she had a friend in the states that she wrote to she was quite intrepid my mum she left school at 14 and went straight to work and she worked in a company that dealt with shipping and international trade so she developed this sort of real fascination for geography and people. She loved people from all nationalities and from all over the world. And she traveled as much as she could. So she was a very sort of independent person. And in her 20s, she was traveling with a group of friends to all parts of Europe. And then in 1955, she went alone on the QE2 ship across the Atlantic to New York and spent several weeks in America to visit this pen friend of hers and it turned out that his whole family had become Baha'is they were a Jewish family that became Baha'is and she'd never heard of the faith and I, I'd say she wasn't particularly spiritually seeking either she had just been blown away by the people she met and she loved the internationalism of the faith and the quality of the people she met and they took her to visit the new newly opened house of worship in Wilmette and she was just enamored with the faith then when she came back to London she started going to Baha'i meetings in London which is where she met my dad eventually yeah. and why did she leave school at 14 well you could in those days and also I think she'd lived through the war you know second world war she was uh, seven or eight when the war began and they were evacuated out of London so you know the children were actually sort of packed off to the countryside to live with complete strangers while the London was being bombed and then when she came back I think she just wanted to work and you know get a job and be grown up <laughs> <laughs> I mean she was an intelligent person but she didn't have any real sort of formal education if you like her intellectual curiosity was was really around the world and geography and people and interacting with people rob i read your bio and it says that since 1988 you've been producing radio programs for the bbc and classic fm in the uk so how did you get into that work well i always loved music i always loved reading and writing i always loved art and i think one of my challenges was that i didn't really want to specialize in anything i was always so interested in really all aspects of culture i always painted i studied art i was interested in film theater i was interested in writing music all these things and it took me a while to find a degree program where I could kind of pursue all those interests. So I found a course which was called Expressive Arts at the time, which was in Brighton on the South Coast. I spent three years making films, doing photography, painting, printing, 
writing, you know, composing music, performing music and so on. It was a great degree. I got that in 1987. But during that time, there was a BBC local radio station just across the road from the university campus, BBC Radio Sussex. And they had a youth program on a Sunday night called Turn It Up. And it was a kind of community-based radio program, but it was all young people, students and young people from the town. Voluntarily, we all went along on a Sunday and we got assignments. So often I would be sent off to interview someone, met some you know, quite famous musicians or one went to a comic convention or all sorts of things or reviewed books or films and so on. So I got quite a bit of experience interviewing and putting together radio programs. And then they asked me to present their student program on a Sunday afternoon, which was called Contact. So I got a bit of experience doing radio while I was still a student. And then when I finished, I thought I don't want to be a starving artist. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know if I've got the kind of real talent to be a, a musician but I really enjoyed radio. So I started calling around. It's still one of those industries, actually, to some extent to this day, where it doesn't matter what you've studied or what kind of training you've got. It's one of those industries where people come in at the bottom, so to speak, as runners or helping out or whatever, and then work their way up. So when I finished my degree, I started calling around various radio stations all over the UK and just said, you know, are there any opportunities? And It so happened that one in Northampton had made a decision that morning, the very morning I rang them, they'd made this decision to take on a trainee in the newsroom and I got the job. So I was only 10 days out of university and I got my first job and actually put me in a studio and they gave me a news bulletin to read the scripts. They asked me to record it on open reel tape while I was reading it. And what I didn't know is that they were sitting in the next studio just listening in while I was doing it. And when I came out, they said, you read that very well. You didn't make a single mistake and you've got a great voice. So we'd like to offer you the job. So and I thought at that point, well, if I knew I was going to get a job on the strength of my voice, then I probably wouldn't have gone through three years of university. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) so I started actually the first two and a half years just reporting, really, for radio. I'd be going out to all sorts of things interviewing people and then reading news bulletins putting together news programs and then after two and a half years at that radio station bbc radio sussex where i started on the youth program was advertising for a news producer so i applied for that and then i got into that so i then spent four years in bbc radio sussex as a news producer writing bulletins editing presenting the news reading the news and putting together news programs after a while i was thinking it's really good skills that i developed but actually i really missed talking about art and music and culture and then classic fm started and classic fm was interesting because up until 1992 there were no national commercial radio stations in the uk there was only bbc stations which is you know, public sector broadcasting, the government advertised the first license for a national commercial radio station to launch in 1992. And lots of people bid for it. And there were lots of different proposals for different kinds of programs, different kinds of radio stations. And Classic FM didn't actually win it. It was won by another proposal, but they couldn't raise the money to launch. And the government then gave the license to this proposal for classic fm and the whole premise of classic fm was that there's a thousand years of great music out there that nobody is really hearing because the way that classical music is presented is usually very stuffy and very intellectual and highbrow and the people that put together the proposal for classic fm was we want to create a radio station which is really a pop channel it's a station where the presenters aren't necessarily experts or academics they're purely enthusiasts they're people that love the music and are quite happy to play a piece of music and say wasn't that a great bit of Beethoven or you know what a lovely piece of Mozart you know so their pleasure and their enjoyment of the music was shared 
with the public and everyone said this is a disaster this will never take off it's no one's going to listen and who's going to listen to a classical station with adverts you know commercial breaks and it had two million listeners within the first six months it was a phenomenal success and it's still going strong 30 years this year and has consistently had an audience of five to six million people ever since and it's you know national institution now many famous broadcasters have worked there over the years the people that are presenting on classic fm now are national well-known personalities so it was great it started i didn't join immediately i waited about a year because often when radio stations start you think well is it going to really last you know i could find myself unemployed in six months if it doesn't take off so i waited and then as it happened someone i knew from bbc radio sussex went to be the news editor at classic fm and i called her one day and said are there any jobs and she said yes actually we're looking for producers so i joined classic fm in 1994 i was there for 13 14 years and it was fantastic actually because the BBC is a huge organisation. There's like 30,000 people working there or something. So the chances of you getting close to anything, it's quite slim, you know, if you're young and starting out. But Classic FM immediately established itself and everybody wanted to be on it. So I found myself producing shows with Paul McCartney or Pavarotti or, you know, going to Hong Kong to do a week of programmes or Singapore or you know, going to Switzerland for a month to do live concerts from the Lucerne Festival. And everybody who's anybody came through the doors, you know, new films were released. So we had famous actors and uh, directors coming in. We had royalty even visiting. We had everybody. So the scope of it and the opportunities it it created to do new and innovative things was was wonderful. So I, for example launched a show which was film music called classic fm at the movies it was a two-hour show every saturday night which was just film music of course we got to go and see all the films preview screenings we got to interview a lot of famous actors and directors and film composers i remember the day after 9 11 actually john williams was in london recording the soundtrack for the first Harry Potter film. And he got stuck because all the flights were cancelled back to the States. So we ended up going to see him in his hotel room and doing a couple of hour interview with him, which became a show. So that was great. And then we also launched a number of other programmes. I did one called If You Like That, You'll Like This. And the premise of that was there were lots of famous people that didn't know whether they liked classical music or not, or they didn't know anything about it. So we start with the premise, what piece of music do you like? And someone might say, oh, well, I like jazz, you know, and you play that piece of music and you say, well, if you like that, then you'll probably like this. And then you introduce them to George Gershwin, you know, and then you have a little conversation with them. Did you like that? Yeah. What did you like about it? Oh, well, then if you like that, then you'll like this. So we had a two hour show where you were basically introducing someone to the whole range of music but based on the, a starting point that they themselves identified. So we, we did a lot of really nice shows um, over the years. I stayed there until 1997 when I felt like I would like to do other things. So I actually became freelance at that point and I started just taking on other writing jobs and other pieces of work, um, including writing some scripts for TV and also writing sleeve notes for CDs. And I also began to work more closely with the Baha'i World Center on a number of projects, which entailed me going to the Holy Land three or four times a year. So that happened until 2009 when I was asked by the Baha'i World Center to go there full time. And I went for four years to look after all the sort of public information and media aspects of the work there. Your bio also says that more recently you've been creating podcasts for Dan Snow's History Hit Channel and The Art Story. Can you describe these podcasts and what's involved in creating them? So when I came back from Israel, and I came back sooner than I expected to because my mother got ill, I was initially taken back in by Classic FM for another three or four years. 
one of the things that I'd always wanted to do was to do a master's in art history that became possible in 2016 and I was able to do my master's I actually left classic FM again for the second time and went freelance having done my art history masters I started writing more about art writing articles very fortunately was able to get quite a bit of writing for the Telegraph which is a national daily newspaper I'd go and review art exhibitions and also write about art various forms then also the art story which is a new york based website which is a sort of wikipedia for art and writing sections of that and i actually suggested to them that they might want to start a podcast we've did three or four shortish episodes just introducing some basic concepts about art different periods of art like the renaissance or neoclassicism or particular just exploring art terms the revolution that's happened more recently is the podcast because up until recently obviously when someone wanted to listen to a radio program they would just tune in at a set time we call that appointment listening that you'd actually want to sit down and listen to a particular program at a particular time same was true of television but with the digital revolution then of course people started accessing their media in all sorts of different ways like through their telephones through their laptops through their tablets and so on so of course all the media companies tumbled to this idea that you could actually make programs available at any time for anyone whenever they wanted it and of course we've seen this huge boom in podcasts so people are listening in on all sorts of subjects, on all sorts of themes, all sorts of programs, and everybody wants to be doing a podcast. So Dan Snow is a very well-known, popular historian who has been on television for perhaps the last 15 to 20 years. He started a podcast called History Hit about five years ago. It was just him and his telephone. He would go and visit a battlefield or a site from World War Two or something and just talk into his phone and put it up online. And it was really a one man band. And then I came across them by accident. I was looking at some uh, bulletins, which I subscribe to for freelancers for writing and so forth. And this podcast history hit was advertising for a web editor. So I just dropped them my resume and said, you know, I've got all this experience they got back to me and said oh well we're very interested in you because of your radio experience so I went in there and this is two years ago now and I just started producing podcasts Dan's podcast is daily actually Dan Snow's history hit goes out every day and it's got a huge following now it's really quite remarkable you know several hundred thousand listens every day per podcast and they were beginning to think that actually there's a very interesting brand proposition here that history hit could become kind of like the netflix for history lovers so they set up historyhit.tv which is a subscription service that you can subscribe to and there are hundreds of videos there and short documentaries on all sorts of historical subjects and then they thought actually it might be interesting to launch other podcasts and see if they would fly under the history hit banner but without Dan Snow presenting them. So initially I worked on a show called How and Why History and then another one called Historical Fiction where we were talking to authors of historical fiction. And then last April I was asked to launch a new series which is called Not Just the Tudors. Of course the Tudors are very popular if you look at BBC History magazine every month, it's in always either Henry VIII or Elizabeth I on the cover. People love the Tudors, Six Wives of Henry VIII, all that turmoil that went on in the 16th century in Britain. So the idea behind this series, not just the Tudors, was that it would be about the Tudors, but not just the Tudors. So broadly, we take the time period 1492 to 1692, and it could be anything in the world that's sort of happened during that period. So, of course, we do do the Tudors, but we might equally do 
the golden age of Spanish exploration or Christopher Columbus, or we've got one coming up in February on Chinese travel writing of the Ming dynasty, or we might do the Aztecs, or we might do witch trials in Northern Europe or whatever it may be. So I'm currently working with a wonderful historian called Professor Susanna Lipscomb. She's again, a very skilled and brilliant historian but she's well known from her tv documentaries and we do two podcasts a week for the not just the tudors series and again it's really interesting i'm I'm finding i'm learning so much i mean my background really was art and art history and my period if you like was modernism i was always really a 20th century art and music person but now we're talking about court painters of henry the eighth and i'm finding it fascinating you know so i'm I'm just my knowledge is expanding so much about English history, which I didn't do particularly closely at school. I mean, we did history, but it wasn't one of my favorite subjects. But then I think often things aren't popular at school because the teachers aren't particularly good at teaching it. I'm finding now that I've just I've always had this kind of insatiable appetite to know things and learn things. So I've now kind of deeply immersed in that period. But I'm also, you know, continuing to read about art and write about art and keep that going. So History Hit in the meantime has just expanded massively. And now there's 30 or 40 people working there and it's producing a whole range of different podcasts. There's the original History Hit podcast. There's not just the Tudors, but there's also one called Gone Medieval. There's one called Warfare. There's a new one just launched, which is to do with environment and ecology. Every time I go to a meeting, they keep saying, oh, we're going to launch this podcast about this subject. And so it's just growing and growing. So it just seems like there's a really booming market for podcasts now. So all those years of radio experience and training, I guess, have put me in good stead for editing and producing now. But it's it's curious because when I started in radio, we were still using open reel tape, you know, and mm. we were recording on open reel tape. We were making edits using a china graph pencil and a razor blade and then sticking the tape physically together with tape you know mm-hmm. whereas now everything's digital i can sit and i have done for the last two years because of lockdowns i've been sat in my flat just recording interviews and editing and producing on my laptop and it's quite extraordinary you know the scope that the technology has made it possible for people to like yourself everyone can produce something and put it out for the whole world to hear. Rob, you're also a scriptwriter and a creative advisor to television programs and several documentary film productions. Can you describe for us the TV programs you were involved in? Yes, so when I first went freelance, I did do some television programs. Sky Television was doing a series of operas and actually what they really were were recordings of live operas from around the world i think the series was called something like 20 operas you must see before you die (laughs) so (laughs) i was writing the introductory texts for those operas so effectively what they were just doing was showing an opera that had been recorded at la scala milan or the met or something like that but they were introduced with a sort of 10 minute introduction by a famous opera singer called leslie garrett so i wrote those and then i wrote another series which was presented by vanessa may the violinist so i did that and then every year in the uk we have something called the classical brit awards which is kind of like the grammys for classical music in britain and it's a big live show at the Royal Albert Hall. And I scripted that one year. So the presenter, the host of the award ceremony was actually reading my script. And then more recently, I've been working on a number of projects with History Hit, actually. And I made a film last year about the artists of World War One because I wanted to make more. And I still want to continue to bring those areas of interest together, art history and broadcasting so i was very interested in the fact that during the first world war the british government created a ministry of information and interestingly it wasn't really about propaganda at the beginning of the first world war it was about propaganda it was about creating 
posters and pamphlets and so on to encourage the war effort and to get people to sign up to go to France and fight and so on. But as the war went on, the British government felt that it was important to memorialise the war. And they actually had official war artists that were sent to the trenches and to the front line in France to capture the carnage, really. That whole period of art is really interesting because, of course, it's soon after cubism and futurism and sort of abstraction beginning to come into modern art at that point. And a lot of these artists that went to the front line in the First World War were schooled in that new movement. They were quite radical in their approach. And the government actually said to them, don't kind of gloss this, don't try and create propaganda, just create what you see, you know, and create what you feel. And after the war ended, the Imperial War Museum was set up in London to memorialise the First World War. And so you've got some of the biggest names in art of that time who went to the trenches and actually created these quite extraordinary works of art uh, and were obviously deeply shocked and deeply affected by it. So I made a film last year about that, which just basically chose 10 paintings from the Imperial War Museum collection and we had a few experts and we interviewed them and showed the work. So, you know, introduces the whole interesting period of artists going out to the front lines and actually trying to capture a conflict, which was also the first conflict that was really captured on movie film and also photography as well. So it's a very interesting period as well that this documentation happened not only with journalists and photographers and filmmakers but also artists who went as well rob you're an author of several books on the baha'i faith the one that i'd like to feature is called ambassador to humanity can you tell us about this work yes this is a book that came out last year to mark the centenary of the passing of abdul baha who was the son of Baha'u'llah, the prophet, founder of the Baha'i faith. In the course of my research into art history, I've always been interested in particular in that period in the early 20th century that I was talking about where modernism was taking off, where people seemed to be experimenting and rejecting the kind of traditions of the past and trying new things out and ex being influenced by cultures from other countries. And it was really such a kind of revolutionary time in, in all aspects of the arts. Right in the heart of this turbulent experimentation, all these things that were going on, in 1911, Abdu'l-Bahá, the son of Baha'u'llah, arrives in London and then Paris and then in 1912 spends 239 days touring the United States. And then he returns to London and then he returns to Paris. And then he goes to Vienna and Budapest and Stuttgart in Germany and goes back to Egypt before returning to the Holy Land. Now, this was a man who had spent from the age of nine, 55 years of his life in exile, banished out of his homeland of Persia, Iran, imprisoned, including 40 years in the worst Ottoman Empire penal colony, Akka, on the shores of the Mediterranean, now in the Holy Land. And it was just extraordinary that this figure, who had spent so much time in prison, should, when he was released in 1908, decide to travel to the West and take this message of peace and unity that Baha'u'llah had proclaimed to Western countries. And what was interesting to me was that Abdu'l-Bahá was very well known. He was celebrated throughout his travels. He met many prominent people, including a number of these modernist writers and artists that I've been very interested in. His travels were very well recorded in newspapers and journals and personal accounts that people made. And I just thought it would be interesting to try and collate all the different accounts or tributes or testimonials that I could find. How did people see this man? What was it 
like to meet him. And I didn't want to dwell too much on his own writings or talks because they've been very well collected in other volumes. But it was more about kind of telling the story of his life, but through the words of others, those who actually physically encountered him. I started bringing them together around the month of March, April, May 2020, and it was the first lockdown. It was actually a very, very good time for me because up until that point, I'd been going to London practically every day and I live about an hour outside of London. So I spend a lot of my day traveling in and then traveling home again and then working a full day in London. But of course, I was at home. So I was not only saving a lot of time, I was saving money on traveling as well. And I spent about a couple of months just immersed in all the accounts I could find of Abdul Baha, right going back to his own childhood, the accounts that his sister left of their time in in Persia, their time in Iraq after the, the first banishment to Baghdad, and then to Turkey, the second banishment to Istanbul, and then Edirne, and then finally to Acre. So I was really trying to gather as much material as I could from all stages of his life, not just the three or four years when he was traveling, but right from early childhood to try and sort of create a picture of this extraordinary man and what he achieved. And then after that, uh, I had an approach from Rain Wilson, who people will know as an actor. He appeared in The Office TV series and Rain wanted to do a series of podcasts. So we actually turned Ambassador to Humanity into a series of nine podcasts, which are also available, which I was able to write and produce with Rain and Parisa Fitzhenley presenting and draw upon some friends who are actors to read some of these testimonials and tributes. And that has just finished. We just released the last of the nine podcasts and it seems to be doing very well. Several thousand listeners to the different episodes and a lot of very positive feedback. Would you like to read an excerpt from Ambassador to Humanity? Yes, I'd love to share... Oh, there are so many passages in this book that are so inspiring and illuminating. But there's one I particularly like. There was a woman called Mira Alfasa. She was known as the mother. And she was a French Hindu leader. And she met Abdu'l-Bahá on many occasions in Paris between February and June 1913. She left one account, which I think is very touching. And at the same time, it's always interesting to hear the accounts of Abdu'l-Bahá that were given by people who were not necessarily followers of his or devotees of his, but people like her, who was a Hindu leader. And she said, he had an excellent nature. He was as simple as his aspiration was great. I liked him very much. His sincerity and his aspiration for the divine were simple and very spontaneous. One day when I went to visit him, he was to give a lecture to his disciples but he was sick and could not get up. Perhaps the meeting would have to be postponed. When I came near to him, he said, go and take my place at today's lecture. I was startled, unprepared as I was to hear such a request. I said to him, I'm not a member of your sect and I know nothing about it, so how can I talk to them about anything? But he insisted, saying, it does not matter. Say anything at all. It will be quite all right. Go and talk, concentrate in the sitting room and then speak. At last he persuaded me to do it. Last Monday, Abdu'l-Bahá took leave of us. In a very few days he will have left Paris and I know many hearts which will feel a great void and will grieve. Yet only the body is leaving us. And what is the body if not precisely that in which men are most alike, be they great or small, wise or ignorant, terrestrial or divine? Yes, you may rest assured that only his body is leaving us. His thought will remain faithfully with us, and his unchanging affection will enfold us, and his spiritual influence will always be the same, absolutely the same. Whether materially he is near or far matters little, for the divine forces elude completely the laws of the material world. They are omnipresent, always at work, to satisfy every receptivity, every sincere aspiration. 
So although it may be pleasant for our outer being to see his physical appearance or hear his voice, to dwell in his presence, we must truly tell ourselves that, inasmuch as it seems indispensable to us, this shows that we are still little conscious of the inner life, the true life. Even if we do not attain to the marvellous depths of the divine life, of which only very rare individuals are constantly conscious, already in the domain of thought, we escape the laws of time and space. You know, that's really profound because, first of all, I think that we may not appreciate so much the significance of that principle that in reality connected by thought, by mm. our spiritual emanations, you might say, and that the universe in a sense is connected by that. And there are movements out there that actually convey that. I really thank you for picking that vignette because that is a concept that I've become more and more aware of and have appreciated. So thank you, Rob, for that. Thank you. I think many of these passages show one of the really special and unique qualities that Abdu'l-Bahá had was he was able to touch people in the best possible way. And it didn't matter who it was, whether he was meeting an ambassador or a university professor or the poorest person in the street or orphans or visiting the Bowery Mission in New York or visiting the Salvation Army Center in London on Christmas Day. He spoke to every heart. And often it wasn't what he said, but it was his manner of being, you know, how he connected with people. He wasn't there to convert them or to convince them or to argue with them. He was there purely to help every soul that he met become the best that they can be. And this comes through time and time again. He seemed to be able to see into people, see what their capacity was, and just lovingly encourage them to become better and to fulfill their capacity and to fulfill their potential. And that's what really comes across as being very, very special. So that everyone who came into contact with him seems to have been touched by him. And there are stories of him speaking and people don't even understand the language, but they know what he's saying, you know, or just the way he will answer their questions without them even asking it. You know, it's just this very heightened spiritual ability, awareness and his recognition of the potential of people to make a contribution to the advancement of society, which is what the message of the Baha'i Faith is all about. Now, Rob, you have a website, robert-weinberg.com. So what will people find when they land on your website? That really was set up just to show people a range of things that I've been involved in. So there are all the articles I've written for The Telegraph and Apollo magazine and The Art Story. There are all the podcasts that I've been involved in producing. There are the books that I've been involved in writing or compiling. So it was really just a showcase of the different work that I've done. Often when you're freelance and you're pitching to various places, you know, just easy to be able to say, go to my website and they can see the quality of the work that you've done, you know, and the, the range and the variety of what you've done. So if people go there, it will link them to all of the publications and different podcasts so they can have a listen for themselves. And Rob, what would you say is the overarching principle that guides the work that you choose to do and put in your energy into? One of the things I find most interesting in the Baha'i faith is the elevation of art to worship. When we think of religion, we think about people being pious and people praying a lot or people retreating and meditating by themselves in isolated places. There are many kinds of images that come to mind when we think of religious life or spiritual life. The Baha'i faith is a faith of action and active service to humanity. I think this is a kind of redefinition of religion. And then one aspect of that is that the Baha'i teachings say that any work that is performed 
to what the best of one's ability and with the spirit of service in mind is equal to worship. There's a lovely story actually of Abdul Bahar in London where he meets a workman who is just doing some work in the apartment where he's been staying. And this workman's a very down to earth chap and he says, Oh, I don't know much about religion. I haven't got much time for religion. And Abdul Bahar says, you perform work in the spirit of service and you assist people and therefore that is worship. I think that's one aspect which is particularly related to artists because elsewhere he says all art is a gift of the Holy Spirit and art is worship. So there's something in trying to do things to the best of your ability and to create things that are as perfect as you can possibly make them that elevates art from just being a pastime or something that's very self-oriented and self-centered and self-expression based to something that actually can have a real impact on the world on society and in itself is a kind of worship and there's a very interesting idea in the writings of the Bab, who was the herald of the Baha'i faith, where he says that whenever you do anything, you should try and bring it to its perfection, its highest point of perfection. And he says everything has this capacity to be perfected and attain its own degree of paradise. So he says the paradise of the stone is the gem, the diamond. So what is effectively a lump of rock can be perfected and cut and polished to the point where it becomes a jewel. A piece of paper can contain inspiring words and be illuminated and beautified. So in a sense, that piece of paper is acquiring its own paradise because it's being used for its highest possible purpose. So if we then start thinking about the kind of transformation we want to create in the world and see everybody wants to live in a better world, wants to live in a world where you know, the extremes of wealth and poverty and the suffering and the prejudice and the wars and the inequalities and the injustices are gone. We have to do that in our own way, through our own writing, through our own art, through our own professions, through our craft, and try our utmost to bring those to a degree of perfection so that in a way our kind of material reality around us becomes a mirror of paradise which is really what all religions have, have striven for for millennia is this idea of you know creating a golden age or creating the kingdom of god on earth if you like it's not something that just appears overnight but it comes about through people seeing what they do and doing what they do to such a degree of commitment and perfection that they actually can at least change the environment in which they live or work or change the community around them or in the biggest possible terms, you know, make the world better. So that inspires me. Rob, thank you so much for sharing your work with us this hour. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rob Weinberg, broadcast journalist, radio and podcast producer and author. His website is robert-weinberg.com. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel Abahai Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Mm-hmm.